The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. asking you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the latter portion of Genesis in chapter 37. I've been thinking a great deal about how to best use the opportunities of this pulpit that are remaining to me. As most of you realize, I've told you that I'm hoping to retire next March 1st. I sat down and counted the Sundays and the special services, including Thanksgiving Eve and Christmas Eve and so on, and including this moment today, there are actually 30 sermons that I will have, Lord willing, opportunity to bring to you. So I'm thinking I'd better have a plan for what I'm doing. My plan takes me to the, this portion of Genesis to look at a great Old Testament life. I did look at the life of Joseph with you quite some time ago. There might even be possibly a few people who remember it, but it was more than 20 years ago, so chances are many will not. And I don't preach rerun sermons, so you're not hearing something that you just heard before. I'm taking a fresh look at a very important Old Testament life that teaches us about the big subject of the providence of God. So today, just being able to introduce it And we'll look about eight or nine times altogether at the life of God's servant Joseph in the Old Testament. And I think you'll begin to appreciate why I choose this particular person to be emphasized and what God was teaching him. But just giving you a taste and introducing you today. Genesis 37. I read the first 11 verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and even the stars were bowing down to me. When he told this to his father and brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is God's holy word. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Many of you know that verse and cling to it and could even tell me that it's Romans 8.28, a scripture passage that many would claim as one of their favorite Bible promises. It seems to be a verse that gives meaning and peace and purpose to life at times when there are many shifting breezes and changes and uncertainties going on for all of us. It could easily be the New Testament verse to hang up as a header over the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called ones, according to his purpose. It tells us that we are not at the mercy of every shifting wind of blind fate or chance, But rather, we are the objects as children of God in Jesus Christ, particularly, we are the objects of God's providential care. We're under his guiding hand. And when evil and misfortune and suffering come our way, there's something meaningful going on, although it may take the long view before we see it. The subject of divine providence is a big subject in the Bible. And Joseph's life displays this subject, teaching us that God rules and overrules in the circumstances of our daily lives. The great theologian Augustine said one time that everything occurs because God wills it to happen either by a positive decree or by his permissive will. Everything that happens, happens according to the will of God in some manner known by him before it happens. Nothing surprises God. Nothing knocks him off his guard or catches him unaware of how to respond. His final goal for his children adopted by grace in Christ cannot fail to be achieved no matter how many ups and downs and ins and outs are suffered by us along the way. Now, years ago when I came here first as your pastor, I remember telling you that I love to preach what people would call biographical preaching, taking the life of a biblical character and getting inside that life and seeing what God was doing. And that is actually a more fertile field in the Old Testament than it is in the New. And I've indulged that particular love more than once. I've explored with you briefly about Noah at some length about Abraham, Jacob, Joseph before, Job, David, Jonah, Habakkuk, and others. And I'm coming back, as I told you, to this scene, the life of Joseph, because 
I feel it puts emphasis on some things that perhaps have not been adequately emphasized in recent years. I'm trying to look at closing the book and feeling that I've been faithful to the themes of Scripture, and this theme of God's providence is one that certainly needs emphasis. If you remember every word I said about Joseph uh, in 1997, more power to you because I don't. And I promise you that what I will do with these explorations will be new. I'll be digging in and looking for new insights that God might give out of his word. First of all, I'm just looking at a general overview here of the theme of God's providence. Maybe you say to yourself, well, it wouldn't occur to me that Joseph was all that important. Pastor, why is Joseph so important? Well, I have to say to you, one reason is because the Bible features him so prominently. From meeting him in the beginning of this chapter at the age of 17, just ready in in our culture to finish up high school, to his death at age over 100 years, you probably don't realize that Joseph has more words covering his life than any other biblical character except Jesus Christ. That's fairly surprising, isn't it? You would think, well, wasn't it Moses or Abraham or David? Check it out. If you want to go and count words, you can do that. But you'll find that more chapters and more words are devoted to Joseph than even the greatest of the patriarchs who are his ancestors or his descendants. That tells us something. God thought this man occupied a pivotal place in his building of his nation, his chosen people called Israel, the family that was swirling around Father Jacob and son Joseph is a family that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was quite a messy family we're going to find as we go into this. Four wives of Jacob, many children, eventually 12 sons and one daughter. And what a messed up life these people lived. You would say, you mean God chose these people to build his nation? You'll probably find yourself saying that as I remind you in coming weeks of some of the things that went on with these folks. But it was Joseph who was really the significant individual who moved down into the land of Egypt, not by his own choosing, rose to prominence there, and found the entire family of his many brothers and his father gathered there so that the nation of Israel was situated after the life of Joseph in Egypt where God would have to come to deliver them by the great exodus under Moses later on. So he was a crucial linchpin in God developing Israel and getting them ready for the things he wanted to do with them. Besides that, Genesis 37 through 50, which are the chapters covering Joseph, 14 chapters, is like a masterpiece of good biography and good literary history. I'm reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower right now. You might think, Dwight Eisenhower, who is he? Some of you know he was a pretty important president. He doesn't get his due, I don't think. Uh, And I enjoy a well-written biography. And so Joseph's story is enthralling, but it's also crucially important for where he is placed in God's Old Testament development of a covenant people. 
You can say that at no time, here's the, here's the thing that impresses me so much, at no time in the life of Joseph, he was not perfect, although there's not a lot of flaws told about him. Yeah, he kind of was a little bit of a proud peacock when he started out, but beyond that, there really is no major flaw told about Joseph. And yet, here's a man that I think his great, to his great credit is the fact that no time in a life of more than a hundred years documented in Scripture, did Joseph get his eyes off of God. Every time he speaks, in every difficult, dark, threatening situation he finds himself, he's ready to interpret that situation in terms of what God is doing, not, oh, woe is me. So we have this man, 18 centuries before the birth of Christ, as a godly man living in an advanced worldly society, the land of Egypt, which was highly developed in cultural terms, and yet a society that was depraved, spiritually dedicated to idols representing the sun and moon and stars and things like crocodiles. Kind of mixed up, isn't it? That you can worship the sun and the moon and a crocodile too. Well, that's the kind of society Joseph had to exist in. And the banner that flies over his life in this Old Testament book of Genesis is that the providence of God constantly, always, was acting invisibly, not seen by the human eye, and yet was functioning amid evil and treachery within his own family and within deception and false treatment and lies and abandonment. God's hand was at work. And that's what we call God's providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a question and answer. The question is, what are God's works of providence? And the answer that children memorize if they learn the catechism is this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. The good government of God in the lives of his people is what providence is about. And so it applies, of course, to our asking daily questions. Does God care about me? Does he care about what I'm going through, the difficulties I'm facing, the disappointments I've suffered? Is God actually at work when there seem to be so many indicators in my life that say he's not? And the great verse that leaps out of the story of Joseph, of course, is the verse of Genesis 50 and verse 20, where Joseph, finally reunited with his sinful brothers, tells them after a long odyssey of things going on, you meant all this to me for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Some people have said that Joseph and Daniel are the two figures of the Bible about whom we're never really told anything that is of major negative consequence. In other words, that they departed into some major sin or whatever. Like I said, we see a little bit of pride and, uh, oh, what do you call it, you know, feeling good about himself in Joseph when he was young. But other than that, there's no overt sin charged to him, but that doesn't mean he was sinless. But people are wrong if they conclude that Joseph was some kind of a sinless 
Superman. He wasn't that at all. He does seem too good to be true. But I hope you might join me in coming weeks as we look at this to see that it was not Joseph too good to be true that's the featured thing. It's Joseph's God who is absolutely good and 100% true in every possible way. Now that's just whetting your appetite a little bit by way of general introduction of the theme of providence. But moving on, secondly, I want to just briefly introduce this family, and we're going to look more at the family next week. A family in which Joseph had to trust God despite a very messed up family of origin. Now Joseph was a pretty auspicious figure in terms of who he was related to. After all, goodness, his great-grandfather was Abraham, the great father of faith whose pilgrimage is told beginning in Genesis 12, and he would be the second most prominent figure in Genesis in terms of the amount of space devoted to him. His grandfather was Isaac, who was somewhat obscure compared to the others, and his father was Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three great patriarchs of the whole nation of Israel. These were Joseph's direct relatives, and his mother was Rachel, the best-loved wife of Jacob, the one that Jacob sought to have at first, and he was tricked into marrying Leah, her sister, and having a half a dozen children with Leah. But then finally, after a couple of servant girls getting into the act as well, and a few more children, he got to marry Rachel. And Joseph was the oldest son, the first son of Rachel. Benjamin would be the second. So here he is, the favorite of his father, literally positioned to be a linchpin, a key element in the development of the whole nation of Israel. Now, a quick word I think is always necessary when we talk about Jacob and his four wives. People often ask the question, young people might wonder, well, how is it these guys in the Bible could just seem to grab as many wives as they wanted to? I would simply say this to you. I've said it many times before. Don't ever understand that just because patriarchs, who were at times godly men, practiced polygamy, that God smiled on polygamy. He absolutely did not. And every time, in fact, someone practiced it, they reaped the wild uh, rewards, if you want to call them rewards, of much strife and much regret later on in their lives. Jacob was not authorized by God to marry four women, but he did. And he had much difficulty in his life because of doing that. Now we find out that Joseph is featured, he's best loved, he's dad's favorite, and he gets this many-colored coat, or there's debate about the exact meaning of the Hebrew word that describes the coat. Is it many-colored, as, as is often translated, or is it possibly a coat with sleeves? But it definitely was a garment worn by either an aristocrat or even a royal person, someone who was marked out for privilege. Comparing it to the way his brothers dressed as they went about their lives as herdsmen, you could almost, if you wanted to put it in a modern idiom, it was as if Jacob gave Joseph a tuxedo and say, here, wear this tuxedo with a nice bow tie and the pleated shirt and and the cummerbund every day. And that made Joseph as almost ridiculously different from his brothers as 
as if his brothers were Amish farmers in their, their uh, heavy-duty work clothes for the, from the field. A composer, Andrew Lloyd Webber, in modern times, as you know, did a musical about Joseph and uh, used the term Joseph's Technicolor Dream Coat. Whether that was an accurate translation or not, it gives you an idea of someone decked out very different by a father who wanted to favor him and didn't really do him any good deed by so making him unique from his brothers. Well, try to picture Jacob's dining room at Thanksgiving time. You know, you've got Jacob at the head of the table. You've got two regular wives who were sisters, Leah and Rachel. Leah with six children, Rachel with two. And then you've got two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, brought into the picture, and they each had two sons. So here are 12 sons, Joseph being the oldest of the most favored wife, when later on, as I said, Rachel had Benjamin, who was certainly favored as well in a different manner. And there's one daughter in all of that mix named Dinah, and she too figures into the misery of this family. Well, all of his previous life, you see, Jacob had been manipulating people. Go back and read his earlier history. He manipulated his parents. He fooled, he conspired with his mother to fool his father and get a blessing. And he manipulated his uncle Laban, who manipulated him back again. And, and these folks were almost, it was like they were constantly playing a game of, I can beat you, oh yeah, I'll beat you after you beat me. And it was going on and on as they tried to one-up each other. And Jacob paid for that. He paid for it in misery and grief and alienation from other people. And eventually, in seeing his own family turn upon him. I can imagine that all dressed up in his fancy gear, Joseph had to watch out when he passed his brothers and when dad wasn't around or a rough kick would be directed towards him or a, a punch between the shoulder blades or a, certainly at least a sneer as he passed his brothers by. Well, this mongrel group was the family that God chose to work within to build his covenant nation as an example of human faith, a nation called Israel. And Jacob, you may recall, has already been given that name, Israel, as his secondary name, the name that the nation would wear. Jacob himself had as his God-given name. As we watch this thing being set up here in chapter 37 and and the situation, telling of the dreams and the the jealousy and anger that came from that, we say, where's God in this? Well, God is here. And you come to gradually realize it as we move forward, seeing his quiet but purposeful hand moving through all of these scenes as Genesis 37 moves on to Genesis 50. But here, just imagine telling your, your other, if you had other family members and you came one day and say, hey, folks, let me tell you my dream I had. All of you were bowing down to me. All of you were, including your mother and father. You were all bowing down to me. Where do you think that would take you? Certainly not to a very pleasant place as you sat around your dinner table and talked about things. Joseph in this situation makes me think about another fellow that I knew about the age of 17 when I was in high school, believe it or not, 
that happened, not in this century, but in a previous century. I was in high school. And I remember a fellow, I can speak his name, it was Bill Burns. Bill was my friend, but it was a complicated friendship. Bill was kind of an amazing guy, handsome, blonde hair, blue eyes. He looked like the ideal, uh, you know, of of Germanic stock. If you had him in World War II, he would have been in the German army, and he would have looked like the the ideal Teuton uh, from that part of the world. Well, Bill was quite accomplished. He was the quarterback of the football team. He was, we had diving in our school. We actually did competitive diving in the days when insurance companies allowed those things to happen. He was a, he was a medal-winning diver. His artwork was displayed in school hallways, and I remember a bank in town had a, a student exhibition of about 10 works of art, and five of them were bills. He was an officer in our class. And in a time when this really mattered, and maybe you young people will appreciate it, still matters, I guess, Bill was far and away the best-dressed guy in the school. Every one of us would have wished we had money for the clothes that Bill was able to wear, sweaters, and everything was always exactly what it should be for a 17-year-old in that time. And I got in competition with Bill in the Department of Drama, and uh, I beat him out a couple times for a dramatic role, but then... In our senior year, the year that counts, he beat, he beat me. So that didn't give me a happy senior year. Well, decades later, I heard through the grapevine of class reunions that Bill's seemingly perfect life didn't go so perfectly. I found out that his father died about five years after our high school graduation, very tragically, and of a young age. And Bill kind of had to assume the head of his family. And then I heard further on that Bill was twice divorced and working on his third marriage. And I thought to myself, wow, look how God has blessed me and my marriage and my children and my work that I do. And it hasn't gone so well for Bill, has it? The long-term perspective changes a lot of things. My teenage jealousy of Bill ceased when I heard about things in his later life. Well, in purely human terms, you can see why people wouldn't have necessarily loved Joseph. You might not have liked him very much as he walked about and flaunted his presence in his fancy coat. He sort of strutted the walk, you could say. But God's word in the chapters that follow show that This great thing that never once in all that is told about him did Joseph ever seem to get his eyes off the Lord his God. Whenever he speaks, he speaks and interprets things through the work of the Lord. And we are given to understand that favoritism didn't ruin him. Brotherly hatred didn't extinguish the honor he gave to the Lord. Prison didn't crush his composure. He never seemed to complain particularly. He never compromised. And when in Egypt, he did not do as Egyptians customarily did. Now, that's about all I can say about him to get you going today. And I want to conclude this morning in the third place with just hitting at some big lessons we're going to see as we follow this man, Joseph, for about two months. Big lessons to look for. 
he does set a rather high moral and ethical standard, even a spiritual standard. And you might think, he's so far above me, he just seems to be, you know, kind of a, like a Tom Brady quarterback, a guy who never loses the big game. How do I aspire to learn anything from that? I can't perform at that kind of a standard in any way in my life. But I would say to you, here is a human model that you can reach for. And God does put people who are spiritually strong before us in his word and in our lives. And we ought to observe what's going on in those lives and say, well, what can I learn? What can I emulate? What can I copy? Think of the ways in which God has already shaped you by human models of Christianity in your life. Stop and think about that. Look back. Think about parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles or older friends or a youth worker or someone who has been a model to you. Maybe you never even thought about it before, but they subconsciously have affected what you understand to be a Christian life. Paul once told believers when he wrote to them, he said, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Ultimately, Christ is the one we should model ourselves on. But there are going to be human beings who help us with that uh, more or less in different ways. Think about who has helped model good Christianity for you. I was totally surprised last week to receive a note from a young woman who was a former Westminster member. I presided at her wedding and sort of sent her off at the time of her wedding, knowing that she and her husband would not live in our immediate community and would therefore worship elsewhere. So since that time, several years ago, I've had almost no contact at all with her. And I was surprised to get a note from her, personal note, several pages long. And it started out, to my surprise, with her telling me, she said, I've owed you this note for several years. I thought, oh, what's this going to be about? And she started to tell me particular things that she had gleaned from the ministry of this church, my own pulpit ministry, as well as that of other pastors and other leaders. And I was just amazed as I turned the pages, as this young lady poured out how much this church, my ministry, and other things had affected her and positively influenced her. I thought, what a blessing. It was just a total blessing to me. Those kind of things have me walking, you know, off the ground a little bit for a few days. Everybody needs encouragement. I can use encouragement. And here was a woman who said, you don't have any idea what a model you were for me. Wow. Is there anybody who would write a note like that to you? I think there probably is if you're striving to walk with Christ. You might not even guess who it is, just as I didn't guess with this one. But quite possibly right now, God is using us as an influence on others. As we come up on Bible school, every single year in Bible school time, I think of a lady who's in heaven named June Schwartz, mother of one of my good friends who was my vacation Bible school teacher at the age of eight, who made it clear the breakthrough in my young mind of what it meant that I had to trust Jesus as my Savior. Red-haired, blue-eyed June Schwartz comes to mind because she was God's evangelist to me. Isn't it a great privilege to know that someone, perhaps, our own children, people we've taught, people we've 
mixed company with is looking to us and saying, there is a person that has helped me understand what it is to be a Christian. It's said that a sculptor was once setting out with a big slab of stone and he was supposed to carve a horse for a monument. And a bystander came by as he was chipping away, starting his statue, and he said, you know, I, I can't comprehend how you do this. How, how in the world do you know what to do with your hammer and chisel to make a horse? And the sculptor said, why, it's really quite simple. I just raise my chisel and remove everything that does not look like a horse. Well, that's humorous, but isn't that kind of what God is doing with us? He raises his chisel and removes all the human material of us that does not look like Jesus Christ. After all, the Romans 8.29 says, we are predestined, we Christians are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So God is raising his chisel and his hammer and chipping away at all the material that doesn't look like Christ. This biography of Joseph is already finished, of course, finished many centuries ago upon the stage of the earth. But it's still here for us to get instruction and say, look, look how wonderful the providence of God worked in many negative experiences when a young man kept his eyes on the Lord and praised the Lord at every turn of his life. That same hidden hand of God that was working for Joseph is working in you and in me. He was not unique. Although exalted on the stage of history and in the page of Scripture, the same dynamic is at work with every Christian who is indwelt today by the Holy Spirit of God. And I note as we close that Jacob gave his son Joseph a splendid cloth robe which he wore for, at best, it looks like a couple of years. And that ended up a crumpled rag stained with animal blood that the brothers took and presented to Jacob to say, look, look, your son Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. Joseph wore that robe of human privilege for a very short time and it was violently stripped away from him and dipped in animal blood. But folks, the borrowed robe of Jesus Christ that we believers in him who call him Lord wear today is also a robe that's already dyed crimson in the blood of our Savior. And know this, once God's hidden hand places that sacred robe on your shoulders, no one and nothing can ever take it away from you, ever again. Let's pray together. Father, I pray as we look ahead in weeks to come, Help us in studying this life. You gave us this life as an exhibit of what it means to have God at work in all circumstances. Help us to submit our own lives and our own circumstances before you as Joseph did. Give us your blessing as your spirit works in us. For Jesus' sake, amen.